If you can't read, if you don't read, you can't think. You just can't understate how critical that is to know the fundamentals of how the world works. If you don't know that, if you can't actually analyze and think, you're naked. You can't fight. You don't have the weaponry with which to fight. What if we could democratize opportunity? Before we jump into today's interview, I want to share the story of one politician who found a way to democratize opportunity. This opportunity was hidden in plain sight. In 1929, a young congressman challenged Herbert Hoover. It was the height of the Great Depression, and Hoover was refusing to pay out pensions to the veterans who had fought in World War I. Now, the veterans were surrounding Washington, D.C., and economic worries filled the hearts and minds of many Americans. One young congressman saw this and followed the money to the root of the problem. The American Republic had fallen prey to monopoly power and little financial oversight from the government. So the young congressman took a page from the Jeffersonian playbook. He decided to speak truth to power. He introduced and succeeded with the bonus bill, securing the money promised to the veterans. Next, he authored an act that prohibited price discrimination and manipulation and prevented the largest retail store at the time from monopolizing the retail industry. After that, he introduced the Bank Secrecy Act, which fights against money laundering. Then he defended Glass-Steagall, which aimed to separate banks from also being security dealers. In the late 1930s, he was getting closer to the roots of this monopoly problem. In those days, the Federal Reserve Board still refused to admit it was a government institution. So he convinced the District of Columbia to threaten to foreclose on the bank's property unless they admitted that they were a government institution. Miraculously, his bold strategy worked. Next, he would go on to write the Employment Act of 1946 and initiated the first investigation into Watergate. That congressman's career lasted 46 years, from 1929 to 1976. That congressman was none other than Wright Patman, a champion of liberating data and one of the most non-political politicians of our age. In today's interview, we talk with the author and analyst Matt Stoller. Matt is the author of Goliath, the hundred-year war between monopoly power and democracy. Wright Patman and the pursuit of justice for economic opportunity inspired Matt's new book and our conversation today. We talk about monopoly power, creating opportunity, and some fascinating American history that's hidden in plain sight. Enjoy. This season of Hidden in Plain Sight is brought to you exclusively by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. Splunk helps organizations worldwide turn data into doing. It's time for data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Learn more at splunk.com or by clicking the link in our show notes. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks. Where are you calling in from? DC. Very cool. How long have you been out in DC area? I've been here since 2005. Since 2005, what big changes have you seen? It's just super gentrified. And when it comes to your work on a day-to-day basis, what's your day look like? Are you writing in the mornings, reading, researching? How's your day broken down? You know, it depends on days when I, you know, on, on weekdays, it's a lot of Zoom meetings on a lot of, you know, just, you know, writing, writing emails and then trying to do some long form writing on letters or reports. 
but that's hard because you really need to be able to take some time to focus. And so I try to do that on the weekends because they're just, I can actually spend the time without being bothered to actually think. And uh, so, you know, every day is, I don't have like a set routine. I mean, I guess I do a morning meeting. I guess I do have a set routine. I do a morning meeting at 1030. Uh, So starting by checking, you know, by going into email, um, preparing for that meeting and then working for the rest of the day based on the uh, to-do list that it comes out of that meeting. And then on the weekends, I try to do long form writing. And out of the long form writing, obviously you have a new book out called Goliath. Um, I think that this emergence from your writing, from your ideas is fascinating. And of course it comes at a crucial time in American culture. Could you tell us a little bit about the book? So the, the book came out of my work in Congress. When I, I, I went to work in Congress as a staffer from 2009 to 2016 with two years in between when I wasn't working in Congress. And I was, I was working largely on financial services policy, so bailouts and foreclosures and Federal Reserve stuff, things like that, competition policy trade, just kind of like money, big money stuff. And I was trying to figure out what happened, uh, why we kept making such bad decisions that were so unfair and that were so destabilizing. And so out of that came, I was you know talking to a lot of different people who had experience in policymaking and who had experience in business and banks and um, advocacy. And ultimately, I hit upon this old tradition that we had forgotten about that that sort of died out of the 1970s of really taking on monopolies. And I learned about a guy named Wright Patman, who's a congressman who'd been in Congress for 46 years from 1929 until 1976. And his that 46 years, you know, what he did in that period by standing up to chain stores and big banks and various other uh, corp- as corporate concentration and then how he was defeated. It was like a fascinating story that I had never heard before and that nobody I knew had heard before. So I thought that was really important to tell the story of that tradition. And that's where the book came from. And, and you know, because when, when I was working on these bailouts and foreclosures and whatnot, it was like there was this whole... Uh, way of seeing the world, of of seeing these banks as neutral institutions as opposed to seeing them as political. And that way of seeing the world where it's just like, oh, we're talking to a bunch of scientists as opposed to we're talking to, a, you know, that's how people in policy saw bankers. They were like, oh, they're just scientists who handle money. And what it, it turns out when I saw them, I was like, wait, these guys are, these guys are just political. They're just after pop political objectives. And but the way that we, we you know, I was trained uh, to, to validate these kind of experts didn't allow us to respond effectively. But this older tradition of Wright-Patman, um, it goes back to Louis Brandeis, it ultimately goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, really did allow, allow, allow me to understand these institutions as political institutions. And that's the tradition that I wanted to write about because I think it's, it's important for people to know that it exists and that it was a big part of how America organized its culture. Sure. And it's uh, conveniently or for whatever reason left out of formal education. You really don't hear about any of this. And you say that Patman opposed monopolies, trusts, branch banking, and excessive and discriminating freight rates. Um, when you started to see the world through his eyes, what is the modern day equivalent of that? Is it pretty much the same? How does it differ? 
Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty similar, actually. You know, the, the principles are the same, right? The principles are that people that work for a living should control the work that they do, right? And, you know, whether you're a, a worker, you know, today, you know, supermarket workers, or whether you're an engineer, right? And, and uh, like you, you design airplanes, like the engineers at Boeing, you know, they're not, they're being controlled by a bunch of monopolists and financiers. And as a result is, yeah, I'm sure they get some lower pay and stuff, but the real result is that the planes crash. Uh, and that's because they're not in the, you know, Boeing used to be run by engineers. Now it's run by, by, by short-term oriented financiers. Um, same thing with artists, same thing with farmers, just people that do, that make things for a living, the sort of the producer class. And, you know, I think you see the, the mechanisms for discriminating and dominating them basically for having middlemen control them, whether that those middlemen were standard oil or JP Morgan bank or you know, the bankers at JP Morgan or, A&P chain store, you know, today they're, it's Google, it's Amazon, it's private equity, it's Facebook. They're, they're different, they're different um, names and the instruments are different. There's the use of, of, of digitization and data, but you know, the, the, the principle of, of being able to discriminate and, and offer different terms of service for different people based on favoritism, being able to um, exploit market power, uh, being able to corrupt a political system, the idea that a big business eventually takes on so much infrastructure, public infrastructure, that it becomes a kind of private government, which is something Mark Zuckerberg has talked about. He's talked about Facebook as a government. Um, you know, that, these are things that, that we've dealt with before uh, that have been really a core part of American history. I went back to the, you know, to, to 1911, but you could go back much further, you know, the British East India Company was a private uh, multinational corporation, and that's what caused the, induced the Boston Tea Party and ultimately the American Revolution. So we talk about uh, corporations, concentration, you know, big banks, but, you know, th this is just another way of saying aristocracy. It's another way of saying, you know, and this is a heated word, but I don't, so, you know, I don't mean it in like the most aggressive form, but it's another way of saying fascism. Right. What you're doing is you're putting a small group of people. And I'm not saying that we're in a fascist society at all. I'm just saying that, like, when you consolidate power so extremely, you get a kind Eventually of you get something resembling that. Yeah, you get, you, you know, you're, you're just basically taking power out of the hands of the people, taking wealth out of the hands of the people, subjecting them to a sort of tyranny. And um, and we have all these words that we use to talk about it. But in, you know, we've had words in the 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th century. And sometimes those words are different. Uh, but they all mean the same thing, which is just this battle between whether we're going to have the people that do the work, control the work, have control over their lives and their families and their communities, or whether they're going to be subject to a kind of a king, an autocrat, a banker, a CEO, whatever you want to call them. Sure. And when you were studying the work of Patman and others, what type of, you know, was there an optimistic vein or was there anything in the work that caused you to have great hope? Or was it generally a kind of a pessimistic rediscovering of this, um, you know, ch this champion of the everyman. It's really optimistic because it's, it's really empowering, right? We're sold the, this kind of like fake debate about, uh, about America where, you know, on the right and the, the, the debate on the right and the left is sort of, it's like inverse and they're, they're both bad. They're both wrong. Um, and I'll, I'll get, and the book, I get into the origin of the, 
intellectual movements on the left and the right that screwed up our understanding of power. But the right, you know, conservatives have uh, like sort of libertarians, the pro-monopolists on the right. Their attitude is monopoly is natural and efficient and good. And big business creates efficiency. You know, you like Amazon, look at all the cool things they get you. You like Google and so on and so forth. And what are you complaining about, right? This stuff is natural, it's efficient. America is good and always good. And, and the, this capitalist order is wonderful. Um, and then the, so, the, the left-wing critique is, you know, America is, this, is sort of this endless sinful place that has always been abusive towards people. And, and the problem is capitalism. Uh, and, and all of these monopolies are, are natural. That's just the natural endpoint of capitalism. And it's bad, and we need to overthrow the existing system and, you know, the end, right? That's, those are the right-wing critique and the left-wing critique. One is a kind of libertarian, the other one is kind of quasi-socialist, right? And the truth is neither that America is good or bad. The truth is America is a battle, right? It, it, we have agency, right? And that's what I learned from this fight over monopoly power, which is that both of this, both stories that were sold, right, are, are ones that remove our own ability as people to act out of the equation. And that's never how it's been, right? We, we have made wonderful choices before. In 1932, we were in a much worse position than we are now. With the Great Depression, you know, in Germany, Hitler was gaining power. Mussolini had a lot of power in Italy already. It was really scary. There, was, there were a lot of talk about revolution here. And we made the choice to go for a reorient, uh, the New Deal, which was a um, getting rid of the power of what, what FDR called, Franklin Delano Roosevelt called the, the money changers in the temple. And we restructured our society and made it a safe, resilient democracy, built a middle class, um, broke up monopolies, broke up banks, and really built a high productivity, high trust uh, political and economic order. And it was a really, you know, we out of that came Silicon Valley, out of that came a whole, you know, a lot of great businesses, right? A lot of really amazing things happened. So we've done this before. We've also gone the other way. So in the, um, in the 1880s, there was a big boom and then a huge bust, similar to the Great Depression, although not quite as bad. And we went the other way. We went to Jim Crow, right? And that was, you know, an auto, a very autocratic, tyrannical system in the South. And we didn't have to go that direction, but we did. And that was a, a, a terrible thing, but it was our choice as Americans. Um, there were political battles over that in both uh, the 1890s and in the 1930s. And we, so we always have the ability to make choices about what kind of society we want to live in. Now, the difference, the, the way I look at, at political economy is a little bit unusual. So I come at this from the left, but I'm not like, I'm not like your standard left-wing partisan. Um, I look at the problem of market structure, and I, markets are, are inherently political. The rules we, that we choose to structure markets uh, based on our political choices. A market without fraud is one kind of market. A market with fraud is a different kind of market. A farmer's market and a derivatives market, they have the, both have the word market in it, but they're very different. And so I come at this in, from, from the, the perspective of saying, Markets have always been critical forums for uh, allocating resources and, and fostering voluntary exchange among, among people. 
How do we structure them? That is a battlefield for whether we are a free people or not. And sometimes we allow monopolies to control them. And sometimes we have open and competitive markets where people are free to exchange with whoever, whoever they want. And that's different than a lot of the kind of the lefties often come at it and say, oh, this is an issue of, you know, just labor organizing and, you know, getting from the capitalist class what we can. And the right wing comes at it and says, pretends that markets are this natural phenomenon, which of course they're not. They're always, you know, sure. they're always political. So that it's a different way of understanding politics and it, it centers social history around banks and corporations, which is where so much of our fights over social justice really are, but they're not really like talked about as a social history, as a moral history. And that's what I want. I wanted to revitalize that and recenter our, our historical understanding on political economy. Sure. And the conversation about whether, you know, you're using the word communism or capitalism, they lose. And like you mentioned, just completely dissolve agency from the equation, because the only thing we have is this system of capital allocation where each institution, each consumer, each individual, each group is allocating capital and the ability of those groups or individuals to allocate capital. That's where we can talk about real things of substance. How do you foresee us being able to, you know, take the politics out of this debate and, you know, move it in a more scientific or mathematical direction? Well, I would say that we don't want to do that because there is no such, there's no science of what a good society is. There's no math that can help you understand what justice is. It, these, are, these, are, these are questions of, you know, how do you calculate mercy, right? How do you calculate uh, hard work, right? I mean, this, these, are, these, are, these are ultimately decisions that we have to make as people based on what we want and what we think uh, our, our moral system should be. And so that's why, like, one of the, one of the important trends, I think, on the, both the right and the left, and this was, comes out of the, the law and economics school at the University of Chicago, but it also comes out of Columbia and um, a historian named Richard Hofstadter and then a Harvard economist named John Kenneth Colbert. But this idea that, that what we should do is we should defer to scientists and we should defer to uh, technocrats to organize bureaucracies that can bring us the good life. That would be, you would see that today in something like Google where they would say, we're here to organize the world's information. And the reality is democracy um, is, is a system where all of us get a say, right? We all get to make an argument about what kind of society we wanna live in. And there are experts, there are scientists, and they're very important, but they don't make policy. They just help serve. In a, in a democracy, experts help serve and uncover the latent choices that we the people have. But what's really important is to not say, you're a scientist, you're an expert, you're a technocrat, therefore you make these value decisions. Because those value decisions are what we the people have to make. Now just uncovering evidence and doing analysis and saying, here's how the system works, here's what the choices kind of are, that's something that's really useful for us to rely on experts um, and scientists to do. But to actually have them making those decisions for us is another way to create aristocracy. Right. And you mentioned that post-World War II, we became a nation of tradespeople again. With everything that's going on right now in the world, 
on a globalist scale, do you foresee a future where America becomes much more proactive in manufacturing and building more things here? Are we going to become a nation of tradespeople again? I hope so. Yeah. I think there, I think we probably will. Um, but you know, we're going to have to, we're early into this pandemic. Uh, and the pandemic is, you know, first you, when a crisis hits, you get like shocked and, um, and then people take a step back and say, wait, what got us into this? Then they make their decision about how they want to handle it. And I think we're still in the, in the shock phase. We haven't gotten to the point where we're saying, oh, wait a second, we might need to like reorient how we do things. Right. When it comes to that reorientation, when you're talking about the book or you're you know, meeting with someone who has just read it, are there any common themes or are there any you know, questions that folks are asking that make you really excited about the future? Yeah. I mean, I think mostly people want to know this. Mostly people read it when they, and then they contact me. They're like, this is a, a great story. It's something I never heard before. Um, or, you know, usually, or sometimes it's people who, you know, worked in finance or, or worked in business or their parents worked in it. And they're like, this fills in a lot of the gaps. I never understood that, you know, my dad was a trucker and he really didn't want trucking deregulation. And he always complained about Jimmy Carter and I never understood why. And now this finally explained it. Or, you know, my, this is one guy who's, who said my his grandfather, I think was the CEO of Texaco. And he, I have a chapter in the book about our, uh, the relationship of American monopolists with, with uh, German companies under Hitler. And it's called trust busters against Hitler. It's how, it's how antitrust was really important in, breaking American ties with Nazi Germany and allowing us to build up the arsenal of democracy. And he said, oh yeah, my grandfather was, this, was the CEO of Texaco and, uh, and he, he did, and he told me about all these deals that they had done with the Nazis. It, it was amazing. He's, he was like, yeah, you know, they, the Nazis were building Texaco to oil tankers and said, we will continue to sell you these oil tankers. This is after World War II started, but before America had gotten in. We'll sell you those oil tankers, but uh, you have to sell us um, airplane fuel that we can continue to we can use to continue the blitz on England. And so they, they, Texaco did that, so they could get the tankers continue wow. to sell the Nazis fuel. And anyway, that was really like a really fun story. But like a lot of people who who saw this happen, it's really meaningful to them because it gives them context. And then a lot of people who are young, they read it, and they're like, oh, wow, this actually explains a lot. Now, what can I do? What can I do about this? And I think it's really exciting to, to see so many people who are, who are like, wow, this really gives me a framework to see the world. It's what I want to do to make change and build a better society. Right. And you mentioned that after Watergate, there were newly elected leaders, and many saw Patman as uh, irrelevant, and he lost his chairmanship of the House Banking Committee. What happened after that? And is there a way to, you know, inspire a new leader to regain power of the House Banking Committee? What's the path forward there? Yeah. So from the 1950s onward, liberals got bored with finance. They thought, oh, this doesn't matter. We've controlled Wall Street. That's, that's irrelevant. It's an old school. Yeah, they had those fights in the 1930s and then the, before then. But now it's, we took care of it. Inequality doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. So banking became like a backwater committee and everybody wanted to be on the cool committees to deal with like environmentalism or civil rights. And so by 1976, like the bank lobbyists were kind of in charge because that's what happens when members, you know, when, when members of Congress don't care about the committee they're on and it's a banking committee, they just do whatever lobbyists want. So the lobbyists engineered a coup 
and ended up convincing a new generation of Democrats who had just been elected because of Watergate as a reaction to Watergate. These Democrats didn't care about banking, so they were perfectly willing to toss Wright Patman overboard, who had, you know, was the first Democrat to investigate Richard Nixon, had impeached Secretary of Treasury Andrew Mellon in the 1930s, and had had, had all of these incredible accomplishments to constrain banks. They tossed him overboard. And there was kind of like this interesting, like, 10-year period from like 76 to 1986, where the Democrats were just really confused, right? Because there were all of these, there was inflation and financial crises then in the 70s, having to do with all these strange new economic instruments that we now know of as, as like what crashed the economy in 2008. They were getting started in the 70s. And the Democrats were just like really confused because they were unmoored from their tradition, which was this anti-monopoly populist tradition. They didn't, hadn't found a new tradition to glom onto. And then there was kind of this moment in like the early to mid-1980s when they all just kind of went on the payroll of Wall Street. They went on Michael Milken's, you know, they all started getting honorarium, which are basically speaking fees for talking to, sure. you know, banks and, and Michael Milken, who was the junk bond king then. And, that, and so the Democratic Party just kind of fell apart in the early, in the early to mid-80s. And then Bill Clinton got elected in ninety. 92, and he really w- took the Democrats to be the party of Wall Street or a party of Wall Street, which was, was just a very different role that they had had. It, it, there hadn't been a debate like that since the 1920s uh, within the Democratic Party. And in the 1920s, that debate happened, and FDR actually ended up winning in 32 and taking the party away from Wall Street. But Bill Clinton did the opposite and took the party towards Wall Street, and then Obama did the same thing. And I think, you know, there's a lot of confusion in the Democratic Party right now and in the, in the banking committee. I don't, um, I don't see a lot of leadership in the Democratic Party right now. I was very surprised by the way that the uh, primary ended with, with Warren and Bernie not only collapsing, but then voting for this massive bailout for the coronavirus, which was very weird. I mean, you're seeing a very misshapen allocation of capital, and you don't see any real pushback on that right now from Democrats. But um, so I'm, I'm not sure where that leadership is going to come from. Although I will say there is, you know, there's still Elizabeth Warren, there's AOC. And then on the right, you have Josh Hawley, you have Marco Rubio. You know, there are a series of, of populists in both parties. And so there's kind of a race right now between the populists on the right and the populists on the left who are who want to, like, actually empower people who work for a living. And you know, they have different ideas of how to do it, but, but they both oppose concentration of power in the hands of private equity and Wall Street and monopolies. So it's kind of a question of like whether they can work together and also which, which sort of faction is going to, uh, is going to outrace the other faction. The, de- the Democrats just took a big step back um, with, this, with, this, uh, with the collapse in the primary. I mean, the Democrats are still, I think, are a little ahead, but they... They did take a big step back. Sure. And when it comes to younger people or anyone out there who is passionate about self-education, what resources do you recommend for folks who do want to become better informed or get involved directly with this battle that's raging right now? How to get involved. I mean, I think just educating yourself, right? I mean, it's, you know, do all the, you know, get involved in politics. That's good. But like, educate yourself, you know, read books, right? I mean, that sounds like a silly this sounds silly to say read books, but like, if you can't read, if you don't read, you can't think. 
And I think yeah. so much of the problem that we have right now is people can't think. And, and I'm talking about major policymakers. They can't think because they're just not reading anything. And staffers that I deal with, they can't think because they don't read. Like you really need to be wrestling with ideas. And the ideas are contained in books. So the book I have, you know, I wrote Goliath, the hundred year war between monopoly power and democracy. But there are a lot of great books out there. There's a lot of books coming out on finance and on, on, um, you know, on labor and on, on market power and just, just educate yourself. It's just so important. You just can't understate how critical that, that is to, to just know the fundamentals of, of how the world works. If you don't know that, if you can't actually analyze and think you're naked, you can't fight. You don't have the weaponry with which to fight. Right. And I think the daily habits and rituals of so many people are being overtaken by tools, software, or services that are increasingly monopolistic. And it's like, as we seed more of our you know, time throughout the day to these tools, there's less time for long form reading. So do you have any recommendations out there? Are there any good books to start with? Uh, is it a matter, like you mentioned, of doing deep work on the weekends? Uh, what are your thoughts there? Uh, no, there's a lot of great books out there. I, I mean, a, a friend of mine, Zach Carter, just wrote a book that's coming out soon called The Price of Peace on John Maynard Keynes. It's, a, it's really wonderful reading. But, uh, but the, the, the gist of it is, 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 is put your phone down at a certain point in the day. You know, I try to, I try to put my phone down after dinner and I try to do some reading before bed. I think on the weekends, you know, I try to, I try to do some reading, you know, social media is, can be useful, but it also really can grab your attention and make it hard to think. Um, and I, you know, I certainly, my, my attention span has shortened. So I would, I would try to try to just put your electronics away for a certain portion of the day and really focus on relating to other people and try to focus on long form reading. Otherwise, you know, you really, you'll never get around to it and you'll, you know, you'll be locked out of the secrets of the world. I mean, honestly, the secrets of the world are, are contained in books. They really are. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Don't let the small paywall stop you from delving into them. In that pursuit of going more towards long form content, you wrote a longer form article called How Democrats Killed Their Populist Soul. In the article, you know, you bring up Patman and his life a little bit. What other anecdotes about the life of Patman do you think are especially relevant for folks out there who maybe feel disheartened or feel like, you know, getting involved in a meaningful way is just not going to be fruitful? Well, okay, so I'll tell you a fun story. The Federal Reserve for a long time sort of pretended that it wasn't part of the U.S. government because they wanted to avoid certain obligations that government agencies have, whether those are contracting obligations or disclosure obligations, whatever it is. So in the 30s, Patman said to the Federal Reserve, he's like, you're part of the government. They said, no, no, we're not. So he went to the city of D.C. and he said, hey, you know, all these uh, government buildings that the Federal Reserve seems to own. Uh, that you're not taxing because they're part of government. Turns out they're not part of government. So they haven't been paying taxes. And the DC government said, oh, really? And started foreclosure proceedings on the Federal Reserve. And then the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve Board said, very quickly said, oh, okay, we're part of government, which I thought was pretty, like, it's like a pretty funny way to knife fight politically. Um, but Patman, you know, he there was a massive protest called the Bonus Army in 1932 of of uh, veterans who who were poor veterans of World War One, and they wanted their pension paid early so they could 
you know, stop being homeless and afford food and things like that. And it had a really big impact on, on politics. And, you know, Patman did, he did investigations. Um, he had a wide network of contacts who gave him information about how business was working. And, but the most important thing that he did, and I think this is where modern politicians kind of go wrong and where most of us kind of go wrong is he didn't mind losing. He didn't care. Like he would put up things for votes and if, and he would, was willing to lose. And I think that's so important. Like if you look at a lot of the caution of the Obama administration, so much of it was just people being like Obama being unwilling to try something and fail, didn't want to fail. And so he didn't try. And I think that so many Democrats, um, today are just, they're unwilling to try something, even if they, uh, you know, unless they absolutely know that it is going to be successful. And so they end up doing very little. They're just not willing to wield power because they're just too scared. And that's like what was so exciting about watching Patman. It wasn't just Patman. I mean, there were a lot of other members that were like this as well, but they really wanted to wield power. And they just, they were like, oh, we're going to try this. And if it doesn't work, we're going to try this other thing. And, um, we're going to investigate. And if corporations mess with us, we're going to like fight back and we might lose, but we're going to just try. And that, that's so much of what was exciting. It's like a lot of what makes Silicon Valley exciting, or at least did, was this notion that you could just sort of set up a company and try something and it might work and it might not. And uh, you learn a lot from failure. Success is great, but you know, it's not a big deal if you fail. And that's, that's what politics kind of more used to be like, where it was, you know, it was like, let's just try things. Let's actually try to do good for people. And if we lose, we lose. But our goal is, is, is to serve the public. Um, it isn't to, you know, always like win elections or always just be like, you know, win court cases or something. Those are the instruments to the larger goal of justice. And I got a real sense of like meaning and dignity from the work that Patman did and from, you know, Manuel Seller and Louis Brandeis and all of these others who were just like, no, no, the point is not to get Democrats in power. The point is justice. Right. And, yeah. and that's, I think what, what was, it's really this tradition is about liberty and justice. And that's kind of what we should have our, our minds around. And, and all of these like processy things, these that we, that like modern political discourse is about largely like a lot of electoral you know, discussions of who can win elections or tactics around elections. That's all just kind of a sideshow, right? We need to keep our minds on what the point of all of this is, which is to have a good society, to have a just society, to be a free people. You couldn't agree more. And I think the quote goes something like uh, from Goethe, daring ideas are like chessmen move forward. They may be beaten, but they may start a winning game. And this is something that is very Silicon Valley-esque uh, or maybe Jeffersonian that modern political leaders have forgotten are there any examples of new bills, new legislation, or you know, talking points that you hear from younger political leaders that give you hope? Or do you see anybody out there in the landscape? Yeah, I mean, there's there, like I think there's you know, Katie Porter does interesting investigations. I like a lot of the things that Josh Hawley does. I mean, Josh Hawley just he 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 said that he wanted to tax Harvard's endowment, which was really fun. Uh, I think there's some interesting, you know, Mark Pocan has, has an interesting proposal on, on supply chains and pharmaceuticals. You know, the key is, is to do oversight, like really to do investigation and oversight. And like David Cicilline in the, in the House Antitrust Subcommittee is leading a big tech investigation where they're just trying to figure out what these, what big tech companies, how they're structured. 
and not necessarily trying to find what's wrong with them, although that's obviously one of the goals, but it's really just to figure out how Amazon, Facebook, Google work, which is really just like, it's just to find the empirical basis for how to do policymaking. And I think that's what we see with the pandemic is that we, we know so little about our own economy and how, you know, and how things work in our own productive systems. That's why we didn't have the, the means to even to make the protective equipment that we needed or to distribute it. And you still see massive problems with that. You still see massive problems with testing. And that's, you know, a function that goes back. Uh, that's a problem that goes back 30, 40 years when we really stopped governing our markets. We stopped doing antitrust work. We stopped doing real regulatory work. We gutted a lot of the capacity in both Congress and in our agencies to understand what was happening in our political economy, as well as the military. They used to know a lot more. And I, so I think really getting back to that, having a deep, detailed knowledge of our institutional makeup, that, that's how you govern a complex, powerful country like the United States. And that's what, you know, the better, I think the better members of Congress are the ones that actually do oversight. Right. And getting a lay of the land is yeah, crucial if we're going to ask the right questions. Could not agree more. Are there any data sets that you're using or is there any uh, research from institutions that you like to cite as kind of like proof for your argument here? What are some of your favorite uh, data-driven talking points on this subject? Recently, I started looking at the uh, Fortune 500 going back to the 1950s and just the size of the Fortune 500 versus GDP. And you get to see that there's just been this growth of the Fortune 500 vis-a-vis um, GDP from, I guess it was, it was around roughly 30% in 1955, and it's about 67% today. So this is kind of a doubling of the uh, share of, uh, of revenue to the GDP from the 50s to, to 2020. And then profits have gone, of, of the Fortune 500 have gone up even more so relative to GDP. So you've seen a, a pretty dramatic increase in market power. I don't know when that happened. I suspect it happened in the Really, it's probably a post-1980 phenomenon, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm still looking through that data. That's the data source that I'm looking at right now. I'm also trying to understand what's happening with the small business lending program. There's not a lot of great data on that yet. You see some survey data, and then the SBA has some data out on, on sort of aggregate loan amounts. But I'm interested uh, in more analysis of where those loans are going. I mean, that's the strongest anti-monopoly program in the, uh, in the country right now is the one that's lending money to small businesses. Uh, just because the markets are right now being structured by who has access to credit. So that's some some data that I'm interested in. Very cool. And Matt, when it comes to larger conversations around this topic, what type of conversations are you hoping to spark uh, amongst students, amongst veterans or people at large? Um, could you get a little bit more specific maybe with like in your ideal world, what would you love to have families and groups and organizations uh, talking about more? There's a number of like on-ramps to the monopoly power problem. I think probably the most obvious one would be um, to build a kind of consciousness around the power of finance is student debt. I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, we need mass student debt forgiveness. That's very similar to what the veterans were asking for in 1932 when they were poor and they said, we want, um, we, we served our nation in World War I. That was part of the social contract that you would take care of us and you're not. 
you need to take care of us. And I think that like a lot of most young people went to college under the premise that you go to college to be cut, to be part of the middle class. And then what ended up happening is they, they came out of college or higher education and they found that, uh, that they were saddled with massive amounts of debt and eroding, eroding opportunity, economic opportunity. And so it was like, it's not so much that they're poor. It's more that there's a, a broken promise. There's a broken promise in the 30s to veterans, and there's a broken promise today to people that went to college. And I think that broken promise, you know, and you can go back to Reagan and Clinton and Obama, Bush, they all said, go to college, it's good for you, it's good for society. So there's a broken promise there. And I think really starting to recognize that we have a broke, that our society promised, our elites did promise things and didn't honor that. I would say that's the, the, the first place to start. And, you know, student debt goes everywhere. It's, it's people that became veterinarians and farmers and people that went into office work. Um, you know, it's not everybody. There's, there's a lot of people that didn't go to college, but, uh, but that's a, a large, you know, that's 40 million people. Uh, 40 million people, I think, have student debt. And, uh, and so it would be a, it, that, that, is, that is a way of kind of radicalizing a large group of people and turning them into a political force a potent political force. And so that's what I would, I think people should go for first if I were designing a, a, polit- a mass movement political strategy. Uh, but then, you know, I think that there are monopolies all around us. And what we really need to figure out how to do is, is build out a, a new legal framework that lets people bring cases so that people can bring their own cases. You know, you shouldn't have to wait for the government. We have private rights of action. So, you know, there are monopolies in everything from you know, the syringes to cheerleading. And why can't, you know, cheerleaders or families of cheerleaders who are being um, controlled by a monopolist, why can't they bring a suit? Or why can't people who, um, you know, doctors who want different syringes, why can't they bring a suit, right? Like, there are some pretty small changes we could make to the law to allow for much more organizing around um, anti-monopoly rules. But uh, so that's, I'll leave it at that. And there's a ton of stuff to do. But, you know, the opportunity here is, is amazing um, to, to, to build a con- to rebuild a country. I mean, it's, it's scary right now, but, uh, but like, you know, what an amazing, what an amazing moment, what an amazing possibility of, of really building a new society. And we can do it since we've done it before. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think those opportunities are hidden all around us. A lot of them are in plain sight. And like you said, at the end of your essay, the prevailing culture must be re-geared so that the Republic may be born anew. Cheers to that. And Matt, thanks so much for being generous with your time. This is awesome. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Thanks, Matt. I'm Sophia Bush, and you've been listening to Hidden in Plain Sight from Mission.org. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. In today's data-driven world, every company, big or small, new or old, is sitting on terabytes of unused, untapped, and unknown data. Splunk helps turn all that data into action. Using cutting-edge AI and machine learning, Splunk delivers real-time predictive insights that will help you on your mission to change the world. With solutions for IT, security, Internet of Things, and business operations, Splunk empowers people to make faster, better decisions and take action to get things done. It's time for our data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Check it out at Splunk.com.